Honey, I blew up the business. Welcome to the podcast. Very excited because we have the awesome and incredible Suki Fuller in the house. I don't know if I'm awesome and incredible. I would say fantabulous. Okay, I stand corrected. We have <laughs> we have the fantabulous Suki Fuller in the house. Uh, woo! And the crowd goes wild. Um, I'm very excited. I, 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 I'm going to just interject. The reason I well, I met Suki through a mutual friend, and, and she was being very generous with her time and and wisdom. And as I was talking to her, she was such a great, fascinating human being. I thought I need to get this this person onto my podcast because she's got so much great wisdom from all over the world, which she can share with our audience. So uh, I'm very excited to bring her to you today because she's a competitive strategic advisor analytical storyteller and acclaimed keynote speaker. You have, I believe, an eclectic, quotes, 16-year career. Eclectic because you've been all over the world working in strategic intelligence and technology, working with the US Department of Defense, to teaching students in China, all over the world. We're going to get into that. She was named by the Financial Times as one of the top 100 Black, Asian, minority ethnic leaders in UK tech and listed numerous times by Computer Weekly as top IT professional, both female and everyone. She's a complete leader in the realms of IT and technology. I, I could list all of her accomplishments, but it's a bit embarrassing, you know, let's not go there. Um, she's in, lives in London. She's very involved in the tech scene. Uh, she she's, uh, uh, sits on with Tech London Advocates and helps advise across a number of different disciplines. And has, has mentored at Startup Accelerators and done all sorts of really interesting stuff. So, super to have you here. Woo! <laughs> Thank you very much, Dan. I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, stop, 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 stop. And actually, my career is like more than 16 years. I, I really need to update my bio, don't I? Because it's more like, I think, 20 now, maybe 19, just wow. coming into 20. 20? Well, there you and go. That's okay, you know. You know, we can round it down a bit, be more youthful, something like that. Yeah, I'm old hat, I'm old hat. I'm, yeah. You know, once you get to 20, you can be like, ah, oh, 20 years in the industry. I know what I'm talking about. You know, we say like 15, 16, people think, hey, you're not quite there yet. Well, exactly. <laughs> well I'm 20 years into my industry and I still don't know what I'm talking about. As you, as listeners to this podcast can tell, um, I, before we kick off, I'm just going to remind everybody, the podcast is brought to, to you by my company, the tech department, which is the one I blew up. And we didn't blow it up entirely. We did bring it back around and it's doing really good. But uh, I want you to help us help uh, other entrepreneurs by sharing this podcast um, widely and commenting and, and liking and, and doing stuff on our posts and, and, and reviewing us on, on particularly Apple Podcasts. If you want to help other entrepreneurs, just do that. That's the mission in this podcast is to help people not do what I do did five years ago and blow my company up. So I'm going to dive into it with Suki. And, and Suki's a really been um, uh, an incredible traveler. And she's dotted all over the world throughout your life. And, I, and I'm really interested in this perspective because you've been a, a different kind of person in lots of different countries in your life. And I just I was curious, when did that start? When was, when was the first time you moved to, to a different country? <laughs> so going, going, we're going to go right back in time when, because I know you were quite young when you first moved from the UK. I was a child. Mm. First time I moved, not traveled. Mm. Traveled that was like diaper. Um, <laughs> moved, I want six, seven. I don't remember actually. I was thinking about this the other day because someone asked me, and I, my brother and I, we were having a discussion. We couldn't decide 
Um, hmm. Here's the ironic thing. My parents don't remember either. Really? <laughs> so, yeah, my parents like, oh, wait, I think you were like six or seven. <laughs> Can we give me a perfect date? I mean, <laughs> do I have to go get the old passport and look at it? You know, go, okay. But yeah, I was around six or six or seven. I want to say seven because my youngest brother was maybe about one and a half. So maybe about seven. And that was moving to Saudi Arabia. Wow. So you, you were born in the UK. Yep. And then you moved to Saudi Arabia. So what were you doing in Saudi Arabia? So my dad is a computer mechanical electrical engineer, and he was recruited when he was in school here in the UK um, to go work in Saudi. And he did that. And we moved there. And Long, long, long story, but we're not going to talk about that because then my dad's going to be like, ooh, she's talking about me again, another <laughs> podcast. <laughs> but I would just want everybody to know that, you know, I was fairly resentful because my parents got dis- divorced and I was pretty resentful of my father. And um, so when I went to university the first time, it was, I want to be an engineer, but not a computer engineer. So I went for chemical engineering. So could be a different engineer and slightly more engineer than my dad. But that didn't work out. <laughs> that was the first career I blew up. <laughs> really? Okay. So you so you went to university as an as a, a chemical process engineer. Is that correct? And and that was that in the US, I believe. So you moved from Saudi to the United States. No, no. There were lots of other countries in between then. So yeah, my my childhood has been nothing but, you know more stamps in my passport before I even got a driver's license than, you know, I had one all around. My parents divorced when I was young, 10, 11-ish. My mother remarried. My stepfather's American in the Air Force. So, of course, U.S. Air Force in Europe, all around countries, Belgium, Germany, all that good stuff. Um the U.S., moved to the U.S. the first time for a long time. You have all these little times that are smaller, broken up with when you travel in military families. Anybody who's in a military family knows sometimes it could be a year or three years. Generally, it's three years, but sometimes that time overseas or time on a base gets cut short, depending on your parents' orders. So... You go someplace, you're like, oh, I'm going to be here for three years. And it's like, no, we're only staying for a year. And it's like, go again. So I usually count the longer, the longer periods of time. So California for three years. And that was while I was eighth grade, ninth grade, and 10th grade. That would be considered the time equivalent to secondary school and on. So what is that? 12, 13, 14. Roughly, wow! And so, so you've been kind of so you you have this sort of childhood of dotting around different times, relatively unsettled, and you kind of wind up at university in the U.S. doing your engineering, or more engineering than your father's engineering degree. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm interested because you 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 were kind of very much a pioneer, I would suggest, at the time in terms of like your background, your the fact you came from an international or different country. The fact you were black and a woman in an engineering degree, and you were in this situation where you were kind of different on every level, and and I'm just curious, like how how was that experience? 
<laughs> with Doc Martens and a Morrissey t-shirt. Doc Martens um, and a Morrissey t-shirt. Uh, this is I'm completing the picture. There we go. So, so what happened was when we when we uh, when we left California, we got stationed back at RAF Lakenheath, which is in Suffolk. So my last few years of high school, um, continuous years, so eleventh um, and twelfth grade, I was in England. So while I was going to an American high school and a U.S. military base, I still had the good fortune to have family here in the U.K. in London. So I'd be going to London. So I got to be part of the scene in South London to know about London more and the UK more as a teenager, late teens, than a lot of my peers did. So I, I had a good mixture. I, I'm really lucky in the fact that I had a good mixture of the British part of my family and then the American part of being involved in the American school system, which was a definite advantage for me um, comparing my education had I remained in British school and what I got in the American school system, mainly, I should say, the American Department of Defense school system, which is heads and, and tails above your average American high school. So, yeah, when I graduated, I, even though I didn't think I was really good at math, my mass SAT score was not that great. Um, but apparently I'm pretty good at it. <laughs> and despite being in primary in secondary school for my one year of secondary school, I was here in the UK. It's like all over the place. <laughs> one year of secondary school, I had a teacher, Mrs. Weber, and she told me that I would never be good at anything in mass. And, um, yeah. And then I went to university in the U S and said, oh, I'm going to do pre-law and um, chemical engineering. Mixes up both parts of who I am, the qualitative and the quantitative. So I got to feed both parts of me, but I really didn't like the engineering aspects. Um, one, being in an environment where you are by yourself for long periods of time, being in the lab, because I lucked out, got a job while I was in school. And um, I realized that that wasn't what I wanted to do, was not what I wanted to do. But I was very cutting edge because there were not very many female students or students of color, any color. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I was, I was kind of, uh, I've always been an outlier and an original. And um, what's really recent? Um, was on a Facebook group with people from my high school and Department of Defense high school goes back years. You've got all these people from like the 1960s class or whatever. And someone mentioned that our high school um, chemistry teacher had recently died. And it pinged in my head something that he said to me when he signed my yearbook at graduation. And he said, you know, despite the test scores, you know, because I was, I was pretty lazy when I, I wouldn't say lazy. If I knew how to do something, I just kind of did it. I didn't really try. And so I was just getting the acceptable grades, whereas I could have gotten exceptional grades had I just put a little bit more effort into it. But he was our 
high school AP chemistry teacher, Dr. Dossadell, and he made this comment that despite the scores and my grades, he knew that I was a lot smarter than those numbers and that I should never forget that. I totally forgot he said that. And that's something that was science and math related. And then when I went to college, university, that's what I actually picked up. But it wasn't, I, I don't think I actually remembered that. It's really weird that you have somebody who says something so negative as Mrs. Weber, and then somebody who says something so positive as Dr. Dossadell, and it actually all blends up and you sort of forget. And we latch on sometimes to the negative things. Because although I was doing the chemistry and the chemical engineering, I never felt like I was smart enough. I just felt like I can blag it. (laughs) (laughs) But turns out I was really good because there are people out there with Harley Davidson's. I got some nice chrome on them that it's down to me. (laughs) There's some aerospace people up there down to me, you know, it's really nice. Amazing. So, so you, you had this kind of background, you've got this sort of ability and this talent, and you're kind of, you're, but you're going into different disciplines in university. Can you tell me a little bit, I'm interested to know, I know you worked with um, the sort of, in the, you got into the intelligence field, and you're this kind of pioneer in this field, whether you're Doc Martin Boots, and you're in there, and, you, and you've had this kind of influence and this background of, of traveling. Uh, so what, what was it that got you into that industry? And what, looking back on that, did you, did you learn, particularly I'm interested in how all these different influences are influencing your view of technology today? So you've kind of got this career, you're going into intelligence, which sounds a world I have no idea what that's like. So so what is a a woman, you know, from a British background in an American uh, university going into the Department of Defense to work in intelligence and technology? How does does that happen? So after the whole chemical engineering career kind of blew up, I was was working, I was getting good good money, but I I went to my boss and I said, ah, this is not what I'm going to do. And he's like, okay, so... We're not going to be giving you any more raises, you know, because you're not in that academic program, but you can still work here because we've trained you. I'm like, okay, I haven't figured out what I'm going to do. And then I came across the intelligence studies program and I was like, that's me. Cause I remember as a child, there were a few things I had a great interest in. One, I always wanted to be Indiana Jones. I mean, I even had a whip and a hat when I was a kid. Um, <laughs> it's like archaeology. I wanted to be an archaeologist, but I also like the factor of James Bond. And I wanted to be James Bond. I wanted to be Q and I wanted to be M. So I wanted to build the gadgets, get to play with the gadgets, and also tell the people what they do with the gadgets. <laughs> and I figured, you know, also being an archaeologist, you know, you get that Indiana Jones sort of, you know, thing going on. I was like, yeah. But I also liked murder mystery. So Poirot, I really, so there was a combination and they were all male characters, which I never really clocked before. To me, they were just characters. When you think about them in your head, it's like, I'm James Bond. You're not really thinking I'm James Bond and I'm a guy. I'm thinking I'm James Bond. You know, the woman part, I'm not really worried about. (laughs) I'm just like, I'm James Bond. And um, yeah, it was, I came across this program and it, fit everything about me. It fits the quantitative, wanting to have uh, an explanation, wanting to have a logical reasoning. It fit that part of me, but it also fit the qualitative, being able to interact with people, being in this sort of storytelling. It fit 100%. 
I went, I did all the interviews because you had an interview to get into this program. <laughs> Most universities, not so much. This one, yes. Um, got into the program, got all the training. So you get the technical training, you get the hands-on training. So you get to work with organizations and government organizations and companies. And then graduation, you go, okay, what sect do you want to work in? And I was like, eh, I don't know. Let's try a little bit of national security. Government work is hard. You're not really allowed to have, I mean, as an analyst, you're not really supposed to have an opinion that you, everybody has a bias, but you're not really supposed to put that or project that into your analysis. However, not having an opinion at all, that's not me. <laughs> and and that's, that's really hard because while it's extremely interesting, extremely rewarding because you're doing something for the greater public good, sometimes you get frustrated because you're giving advice, you're giving assessments, and then the decision that comes about is nowhere near where you thought it should be. It's like, um, I recommended, but I really didn't think you were going to go that way because I clearly, I know that's wrong, but you can't say that. So decisions are being made on analysis that you've done and research that you've done. And you're going, ah, oh, you know, it's like bang your head against the wall because you go, no, just like I'm sure there are a lot of analysts out there going, I did not say there were weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. it's like, that's not what we said. And, and that's what it's like working in government intel. You, you get a little frustrated, but, and people always hear about when things go wrong. They never hear about, the everyday life factors where things have gone right 20, 23 hours and 59 minutes out of the day, there are things that go right. And it is that one minute that something goes wrong that everybody hears about. And that's the unfortunate thing. Yeah. Well, looking back now, because you, you sort of had this period of travel within the sort of, um, well, within the kind of, I guess, Department of Defense system. And then you're in this kind of analysis sort of intelligence sort of um, world and you get to a point where you're looking back now at that because you're you're in a more perhaps in a more commercial space what do you think are the things you've learned from that time of, of both the sort of education process you went through and the travel you went through and then how that applied within the department of defense and this intelligence thing how does that apply to your more commercial work now i think having the advantage of one first of all traveling as a child gives you a different perspective from your peers, especially if they've never traveled outside of the country. And you'll have a lot of people in the US when I was growing up that hadn't. So you're able to look at things not only from sort of a, you understand one culture a lot more because you've lived it. Um, you have friends, you've experienced it firsthand, not through a book, not through a television show, but you actually were eating that food, sitting in a room, talking to people in those other countries. So there's a, a different mindset. You go into your professional world with a different mindset, 100%. And that continues throughout your life when you travel a lot and you get that, um, in the army, we call it boots on the ground. And a lot of times when you're, especially when you're in grad school, you're working on an MBA, you have a professor who's telling you, oh, well, you know, this is how a business model works in, in China. And you ask the question, oh, have you ever worked in China? Well, no, I've been there. Oh, well, how long were you there? Oh, just a few days. It's like, 
you can't, you're giving me an example, which is based on a textbook that you may have read. It's based on case studies that somebody at Harvard Business Press wrote or something, but you haven't actually experienced it yourself. You don't know what, you know, Guanchi really means in the full aspect of it. You know what it means in the book version. So it's a definite advantage. It's made my thought process different because when I'm looking at an issue, I'm looking at it 360 degrees. I'm always, it's a, I think it's a blessing and a curse because for everything that I consider, I'm always looking at it holistically. I'm looking at it from every perspective. And sometimes that means that you get a little bit of analysis paralysis. You have too much information coming at you, too much data, and you want to consider everything. And there comes a time when you just have to cut and say, you know what, this is where you stop and this is where you start. And you have to say, this is where I need to stop and just make a decision on how I'm going to do something. So blessing and a curse, but it has been a definite, I like it. <laughs> yeah. I like it. So you've got all this experience of working on a kind of uh, is very deep level uh, on a very international level. And you're working a lot in the tech sector now in, in London. And I'm just, uh, what I'm curious about is how all this is diverse in terms of very geographically diverse, very sort of experientially diverse experience get, gets applied to the world of, for example, the, the tech startup world, which, which I know you're involved in, in, in particularly in, the, in the ex, working with accelerators and mentoring in those in those kinds of spaces. It's had its because in some ways a lot of this idea of an intelligence and the national security agency and, and analysis of, of, of intelligence sounds really kind of abstract. How does this kind of get you, you know the, even that kind of experience used on a practical day to day commercial level? What, what what are the lessons in there for for someone? I always explain it just like the lean cycle, the intelligence cycle and the lean cycle could pretty much sit on top of each other because the first thing a startup has to do is identify the problem. It's like, why are you going to start this company? What problem are you trying to solve? And in the intelligence world, the question is, you know, what are you trying to solve? <laughs> and so what are you trying to do? What are you trying to prevent? What are you trying to find out about a situation? There's always at the beginning a core, you know, there's always a, a why, you know, why this? What's going to happen? Why, why do you think that's going to happen? So it is really identifying an issue, a problem, a situation, and getting as much information as you can. So gathering all that data. And then once you've done that, it's organizing that data, that information, analyzing it, and then making an assessment based on that. And it's iterative. It's basically the lean cycle and intelligence cycle are synonymous. And when I'm talking to startups, the thing that a lot of them don't realize is that with the intelligence cycle, just intelligence itself, by itself, not even think, it should be a cog that's in every aspect of what you're doing. So while you are gathering information, you should be also analyzing the information you have, organizing it at the same time. While you're moving on to every aspect, there should be that wheel turning. It's a cog within a cog. And when I'm speaking to startups, they don't actually recognize that. They just think that 
intelligence is market intelligence. They think it's something that comes at the end. It's their market research. It's like, oh, we've got this idea. We've got all this information. We're doing this. And now we're going to go talk to people about whether or not somebody else is working on it. They always think it's external. And intelligence in itself is not external. It's internal. There's a book by a guy named Richard Hewer, Richard's Hewer, and it's the psychology of an intelligence analyst. And the fact of the matter is, it's something that now everybody's talking about. It's the analysis of yourself. It's understanding yourself, understanding your biases, your blind spots, your mindset. And that's what I always tell people they need to do, make sure they understand that before they even try to do anything else, because it influences what you do. Just like um, when somebody is deciding, like right now we have AI, <clears throat> excuse me, we have AI and a lot of people are saying, well, we wanted to be able to help to make decisions, but the person who originally came up with the concepts, what was their mindset? They have biases that are going to be built into that system. And if that is not recognized, then you're going to have a system that is consistently flawed by that intrinsic basic bias at the very beginning. I mean, that's why my biggest one right now is metal detectors. Metal detectors? <laughs> because, really? because even though we have the advances in metal detectors, I mean, now, you know, you don't actually have to take off your shoes. Men don't actually have to take off a belt anymore. But I'll tell you what, if you're a woman with a wired freaking bra, <laughs> you still get wanded, even in a new 360 degree metal detector that does a scan, you will still get wanded for an underwire metal bra. Wow. Why is that? But guys can walk through with belts. You can walk through with your shoes that have, you know, little pieces of metal around with the shoelaces go fit through your shoes. But women still get wanted for bras. Why is that? Because the basic baseline flaw design is that it was designed by a guy and they didn't take that in consideration. And it's never changed. It's changing now, but all these new machines that are out still have that. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think I'm really in, in, enjoying your observation of starting from your in the inside, and that's kind of as an entrepreneur, or a, if you're a startup or a founder, your kind of like your biases and how they kind of propagate out. Because what you what you're describing actually is a, a market opportunity or or something where someone can make better software or better products or better services that serve fifty percent in this case of the world better because. They've thought about it a bit deeper and, and unpacked how their own psychology is applied to that. That's why when people are talking about diversity, and I hate that term, but it serves a purpose. That's why when people talk about inclusivity and diversity of a company, why it's needed because, and why it's necessary and why it should just be part of whatever you're doing, because that diversity of thought, diversity of people when you're at the very beginning of your journey as a company is why your company will survive. It'll do better because you'll have that different insight. If Imagine if those people developing metal detectors had had women on their team, they would never have had that issue. Metal detectors would have, there would have been a mindset. I mean, I'm pretty sure if there was a woman on the team originally, underwire bras, 
belts would have even been considered because even though men wear belts, women wore belts too. And they would be like, well, you know, if you got a belt on, but guys didn't even think about it. They're just like, ah, well, you know, whatever. And it's, it's just those little nuances of, of things that others consider that, you know, like you wear glasses and I wear contact lenses, but I wear glasses also, but I have, I have hard contact lenses that I have to wear. So I need to have hard and soft when I'm going someplace I have to have two different types of contact solution. <laughs> so when you're going on a plane and they say you can only have a hundred milligrams, guess what? Hard contact lens solution only comes in 120 bottles, 120 milliliter bottles. You can get the travel bottles, but they never sell them at airports because who wears hard lenses? Not very many people. So it's just, it's just those little nuances that, People don't think about when they are designing systems, when you think about it. Who knew, right? Yeah, it's interesting. So what would your advice be to people listening? If they're kind of um, working through their, in their company, designing products and services, or maybe designing a business from, from scratch, how, did, how does one learn from your, you know, all these these 20, 20 years experiences of designing systems and analyzing intelligence and, and looking at the world in this way, making stories from the data. That So you, you've described stories here, but the data perhaps was a jumble. How does one kind of navigate through that and actually learn from? What, what are the lessons that you think we could, uh, could take from all of this? If someone looks like you, you can talk to them, but you can't always have just their opinion. So, you know, me as a black female... I could talk to another black female. They may have a slightly different perspective, but I need other people in order to make sure I'm having the best product possible. Even if it's a product that's not serving somebody, if it's a product specifically serving, um, say another a black woman, doesn't mean that I shouldn't talk to white men. It, it's because they may have a perspective on that, that I may not, they may know something that I may not have considered because I'm a black female, I'll know what best serves me, but sometimes someone else has an idea of something that they're seeing from the outside that may actually be beneficial to you. So I, I, I always tell people, always consider that. Research, nothing frustrates me more than when people say, oh, I don't have a competitor. Everybody has a competitor. You know, the sun, the moon, competitors. <laughs> You know, <laughs> it, it frustrates me beyond no, no end. The most frustrating thing about startups, people always feel like they need to raise funding from investors. It's not always the way. And I think now with the economic downturn, more people will be moving towards making sure they have a profitable business before they try to do that. Because if you need to consistently get money from investors, but you're not making any money, who is that benefiting? You know, you still have to pay those investors. And what happens at the end of it, you pay the investors and you end up with nothing except, ooh, I started this company and I exited, but I got nothing. Absolutely ridiculous. The whole point of building a business is to make sure that it is functional, that you are making it profitable and it's profitable for you because you started that business. It shouldn't always be making money for somebody else. And yeah, so I always tell people, if you have the ability to make something that is functionally profitable, 
do that. Make money. Make money. And if you need the investment, then you get the investment. But if you're starting off with a model where you need investment right away, something's wrong. Yeah, we can have that argument of people don't have the access to the funding in order to start a business. But I always think if you're starting a business and it's so high level that you won't have the money to start it, maybe you need to reconsider at first how you go about that. I, I don't know. That's one of those those tough questions because people really do have some brilliant ideas and have zero money. Yeah, you can go for the funding, but don't think that's your first option. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. And it's, it's a sort of um, old-fashioned concept we have of creating value and, and then selling it to somebody and then making profit. You know, that's a kind of really the core of a business really should be built around that. You know, and it, and uh, I think there's it's, it's definitely been a kind of trend over the last, well, 15 years at least, where it's there's a narrative that's arguably the venture capitalist view of the world, which is, you know, let's throw spaghetti at the wall and some of it will stick. And every founder seems to sort of buy into that story. Yeah. And it's rubbish. <laughs> I think it's absolute rubbish. And I mean, you're talking about somebody who's invested, talking to someone who has also advised, I still advise funds. I think it is the most asinine because <laughs> it's basically going, we think you have a really good idea. We're going to give you this money, but you have to pay us back plus some. And oh yeah, by the way, we're going to give this money to some people that don't deserve it. And there are companies that clearly do deserve it. And everybody lauds them as gods. And and I always tell people, you know, I'm like, Flavor Flav had it right. You know, don't believe the hype. <laughs> you know, there's too much worshipping of investors and funds and people that have gone about and raised significant money. But you look at some of these companies, they're not even profitable. <clears throat> I mean, Google, I think Google wasn't profitable until about 10 years ago. <laughs> and it's ridiculous when you think about it. Twitter. You know, all of these huge companies are not profitable. They've just become recently pro and still they're having trouble. And everybody praises these companies that have raised huge amounts of money, are basically living on the fact that they have gone to investors and gotten money and not on the fact that they are actually selling a product. They are selling something that people are willing to buy. And everybody says, well, you know, if if you're getting something and it's free, then you're 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 the product, you know. Yeah, we all know that line, but at the same time, if that's the model that you want to copy, then it's bound to eventually fail. And I don't think people understand that. Yeah, that sustainability thing. It's it's kind of yeah, it's a long game. This game, like running a company, and and that's what I've been doing for like twenty, literally twenty years, and. It's, and you can see that resilience has to be built in. And what I think is really interesting about this conversation that I, I, I'm going to take away is, is um, your story of the, di using that word, diversity of experience, of travel, of being, seeing the world and seeing all these different perspectives. And what you're talking about here is taking those, is enriching your own psyche, your own psychology by having these experiences and then being open to the world and then applying, then learning from that, seeing your biases and applying that to create products and services that create value, that 
that can scan for an underwired bra. You like, and actually that that will be a competitive advantage because you've taken the time to absorb perspectives and views and and to learn and to build. And I think that's a that for me is a really valuable. A takeaway, which I will take away from today, because it's something I'm I'll continuously iterating my business and product and service, and and it's something where I think that's a really great takeaway. And and I think this sustainability of your business and not getting caught up in the hype, and yeah, you're quite right. All these big companies that have been fueled by endless venture capital, it's kind of um, it's exhausting. You know, it's like a perpetual motion machine built on other people's money. It frustrates me. I mean, right now you have. Adam Newman from WeWork um, recently decided to start something else. I think it's a crypto, um, crypto or Web three or something. And um, Anderson Horowitz gave him money. And I'm like, didn't you basically kill the WeWork model? <laughs> Haven't you damaged that to the point where, I mean, I don't even know how many locations they had that never. The pandemic kind of helped, actually, because they had to stop. But it's it's ridiculous how people will continually give the same people money, even when they've done something which is um, negative, heinous. And I, I I'm not sure. I mean, as I said before, when we when we got onto the recording that I was entirely frustrated and angry and and that's you know world events but also just when you're looking at the startup ecosystem globally it's been decimated by the same investors that are giving large amounts of money to companies that aren't building anything of value I mean I don't need we don't need another sorry ride hailing app or workspace sharing we don't need another one there is more than enough right now we do and everybody says well we're going to do it better well guess what sometimes when you actually think about it what happens co-working spaces mm, we can do it better most people they're like yeah i can just be at home and share my kitchen <laughs> you know i also have a bunch of people i know come over to my house <laughs> hmm who knew? You know, it, it's a uh, ride, you know, ride sharing. Oh, well, you know, somebody run a car and we'll just all share the costs. Hmm. It's, it's unreal. Sometimes the most basic things and fundamentals is what everybody will go back to. And so when you think about what's really worth something, they're not getting the money. So you're looking at companies that are talking about sustainable energy. But the things that we really need, we really need right now are, you know, how do we protect the world? How do we grow food better? I mean, we're seeing a food shortage now that's going to come about because of one, energy crisis and two, world wars. And people aren't thinking about that long-term sustainability. Batteries. We're building all of these power supplies, but mining, I mean, lithium, that that's you know, one of the areas that I'm like, if you're going to invest, invest in minerals and ores, because guess what? Um, can't, can't build a battery, can't build a computer, can't build anything, can't build servers, can't build towers, anything without those basic metals. And right now, we're not doing that. I mean, it's frustrating. 
<laughs> I think well, what's kind of interesting in there is this idea of looking at the world and analysing and taking that, looking a little bit deeper than normal. Perhaps that's a kind of again a good, great takeaway for us all from today's podcast. We're getting, we're heading towards the end of our time together, and it's been a really fantastic conversation, really sort of wide ranging, and and, and got me thinking on a few different levels and pr- provoking some thoughts in me at least. Um, where, where can people find you or find out more about you, Suki? Uh, it's always the question. My website is not updated, but people can go to my website, um, LinkedIn, and I've become quite a little um, Instagram user of late in the last, uh, during the pandemic, post my daily routine, or I, I will post something daily on Instagram. It's sort of a experiment for myself to be more <laughs> visually focused. Very good. So we should check you out on Instagram for your daily post to be, I want to see your visual focus evolving over time. It's always a selfie. Every day I take a selfie because I don't, I never really liked having pictures of myself. I never liked posting pictures and a friend challenged me. And so I kept the challenge and I'll post sometimes about my exercise or I'll post, you know, like today I I did a podcast. I'll post that I recorded the podcast and I'll let people know, you know, when the podcast comes out, you know, this is where you can find it. But I, I do that every day and it's just, um, and I do it at the end of the day. It's about not constantly, like a lot of people I know will record throughout the day and they'll do their posts throughout the day and they'll do multiple posts. I will do one. And that's because during the day I want to be present. So I might take a picture but then at that other times, I'm just in the moment. And LinkedIn, I'll post, but not as often as I used to, but I will post. And um, and I think one of the reasons I don't post as much is, as I was saying before the podcast, I am angry. <laughs> <laughs> and while I am laughing while I say that, it's just, you know, world events, uh, things that are going off politically, socially, that I get really I think that's the the empathetic side of me just gets a little overwhelmed and I get very angry at the injustices of the world. And so I don't post as much as I do on Twitter as I used to, because as I always tell people, Facebook is like my family. It's like my house. Not very many people are in there. LinkedIn is like my office. So I try to keep that a little bit more professional (laughs) and Twitter is like when you're sitting out in your garden or out in your front yard and you're just like, you know, having a big cookout and you can be like really crazy and wild. And, and that's the place where I'm just like, you know what? I need to pull back from that because I could go down some very dark rabbit holes on Twitter. And so I'll post and I'll say some things, but I generally have to temper myself because you can get pulled and it can become very emotionally toxic. And um, and Instagram is like your happy place. People only show the things that make them happy. Although I have been known to post <laughs> when I'm upset. I'll just be like, I'm not having a good day, people. I didn't have a good day, you know? And I will post the things about women's health that people don't want to know, like... Hey, you know, menstrual cramps are not nice. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, just to normalize it, there are things in the world that we have to normalize. So, you know, you can look at my website, sukifuller.com. That's going to be updated soon-ish. And 
can always find me on Chartwell Speakers. Yeah, I have a speaker agency, but, you know, eh, whatever. <laughs> well, I think we should, we'll put all those links in our, our, our show notes. And so please check her out. A very fascinating and in deep conversation and i think we should just follow you on on see what you're up to and check you out on instagram or your daily post and um and thanks everyone for joining us and uh, Suki, what a fantastic uh, conversation thanks so much for sharing and i'll see everybody next time do you want to get the top five tidbits from each episode emailed to your inbox every friday yes you do it saves you having to go through and make notes and make a note of all the books and all the ideas that are in the podcast. We go through, we choose the top five we like, plus put all the links into that email. So if you just go up to honeyibleweupthebusiness.com, yes, that's honeyibleweupthebusiness.com, and just enter your email address. There's a little box, just enter it in, and we will send you that information. And it saves you having to make notes and all that. That's uh, make your life a bit easier. And of course, if you did enjoy the episode, please consider subscribing. We are trying to help people through this. So the more people that subscribe, review, rate on Apple, Google, Podcasts, Spotify, the more people will see it and the more we can help. So help us help other people, other entrepreneurs like you. And before I go, I've got to say big up to my company, the tech department, the company we blew up and put back together again. They're generously supporting me on this mission through the podcast. So if you guys want to have a look at a company that can really help you improve your technology, make it better so your business gets better to boosting your sales and your profit and a bit more sanity in your life, a little less stress, then head up to the techdept.com, the tech department, uh, my company. Uh, give us a look. On behalf of all of us here, thank you for listening. And I'll see you next time.